Okay, to, hello? Hello. There it is. Um, today is March the 15th, the Ides of March. I have a good friend that is his birthday today. So if he'll, he's on the line, online, on getting things sometimes. So happy birthday, Greg. If he's, if he's going to hear this sometime. Um, I'm going to give a detailed account of the conference that I was at for the last three days. Sunday. It was a really good conference. And so I will just um, defer to Sunday because I don't want to say it twice. There's a lot of people who uh, are not here tonight that might be here uh, Sunday. So let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. Uh, We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your mighty word and for the opportunity to be here to study it, to inculcate your principles, to enable us to think divine viewpoint, which is absolutely necessary for us to be successful and fulfill your plan on this planet that is ruled by Satan. So we pray that you will help us to focus, that we'll take the things that we learn and have it turn into epinosis knowledge, long-term memory, so that we will be able to stand firm for the faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have to say, it's a little, it feels a little funny after being for three days where you're sitting and seeing everyone speak, and now it's reversed. It's, I don't know, it's just a little deal. <clears throat> I received... Um, update today from the Consulate General of Israel, Mir Shlomo, and I met him at a pastor's meeting, and he asked if he could have our emails so he could stay up to date, we could stay up to date, and he's been faithful in sending us information that is hot off the press. There was a a, a Jewish man named Elisa, young man, that spoke at the conference, and he was bringing us kind of up to speed what is happening in I- Israel, mainly how absolutely precarious position they're in right now. And this, and I got this today, this update uh, that says that southern Israel is under fire. Uh, I'll give you a little more information on that in a moment, but. Uh, this Elias, Elias, I would say he was probably in his mid-30s, something like that. Very articulate, very, uh, uh, I don't want to say he was a handsome man, but um, I don't know, he had a, a, a bearing that was pleasant. And he's explaining how for the first time that uh, ever that the Jews are beginning to feel not as if they're not alone because the evangelical um, Christians have been reaching out to them, and so they have encouraged that. Uh, Dr. Dean, uh, this was at West Houston Bible Church, and that's Dr. Dean's church, and he told us that when we see him come in, he said he is not a believer, 
And sometimes they will wear that yarmulke on their head. He said, there's a time and place for everything. Don't run over there and try to evangelize him. He said, the last time they had someone come in with a yarmulke, and they came into the church, they didn't make it two step, I mean, ten steps, and two people were already on them. And that's honorable in the, in the sense that they're trying to fulfill their duty as being witnesses, but he said, there's a time and a place. So um, it was interesting, and he went through each country. He said uh, some things about Egypt I didn't know. He said uh, that Egypt by far has the, the largest population, that they have <coughs> their population is as great as all the other uh, Mideast co- uh, Arab countries put together. And that now, I don't know if you were aware of it, but the uh, Muslim Brotherhood has already um, uh, voted to break the treaty that, was, that Egypt had with Israel and they kicked the Israeli ambassador out. They already did that. That was the first thing they did. And he was talking about uh, Syria and Lebanon and how uh, Syria is, uh, well, y'all know what's going on in Syria. It's just uh, hellacious. He said, but a very serious threat is Jordan, that they are so unstable that they could go the same route as Libya or Syria, and that could happen at any time. And when that happens, it's even... (coughs) even less stable in the area. And he said, now I've talked, when he, during his, his uh, message, he said, I've talked for 10 minutes. He said, I haven't even mentioned Iran yet. And so after you saw all of the danger that was there for Israel, and then he says, he started addressing uh, Iran, you can see that we, we live in perilous times, not just Israel. And that's one I guess the thrust of his message was that this everything that happens in the uh, Mideast with regards to Israel doesn't just affect Israel. It affects the United States as well. Now, I said I wasn't going to go into details about things that happened here, and I already did it, uh, at least a little of it. This is the email that I received today. Um, you know, I think I'll put this on the overhead. That I don't think you'll be able to see the text because it's in blue and it's not very large, but you may be able to see this picture. See it up here? He said this was uh, March the 11th is when this uh, uh, came out, and I just received it, uh, well, actually it was yesterday. He said over the past two days, over 135 rockets have been fired uh, by the Gaza Strip terrorists at Israel, targeting Israelis, uh, communities, including the cities of uh, Be'er, uh, Shiva, Ashdod, and Ashkelon, threatening up to 520,000 people. 74 of these rockets hit Israel territory, injuring four civilians and causing damages to houses and so forth. Um, 200,000 civilian residents. Uh, he, this uh, Elisha said that when you have to shut down your normal activity, which is he was talking about this time, uh, they don't go to school, the shops don't open because uh, it's too dangerous. 135 rockets in two days. Huh? That seems like quite a bit. And uh, he goes on to talk about the, uh, the suicide bombers and how the IDF, that's the Israeli uh, Defense Force, is prepared to defend the residents of Israel and will respond with strength and determination against the attempted terrorist attacks. Despite the terrorist organizations 
and strategy of uh, operating from within the heart of a civilian population, the IDF acts in a focused manner in order to strike the terrorist while minimizing collateral damage. And here's the, you can see this is a, a, somebody got a picture when the rockets were being shot off here. 135 in two days. I, I've said before and I still hold to this that when Ariel Sharon forcibly removed Israelis from the Gaza Strip, it was a huge mistake. And of course, uh, when the Arabs got in, they just ruined all the infrastructure. And the first thing they did was vote. Is it uh, Hezbollah? I believe it's Hamas in the in the north, or is it Hezbollah? Y'all, y'all remember? Huh? Okay, Hamas is in Gaza, and of course they they took over power, and now they are launching these things. <clears throat> this should always be of interest to us. We want to continue to pray for Israel. Because if you want to know what God is up to, you have to look no further than Israel. And we know that Israel is not going to be dispersed again in return. Y'all remember the scripture? <clears throat> Isaiah 11.11. Isaiah 11.11 says that Israel is going to be regathered for the second time. And the context there is clearly referring to the second advent. So Israel is going to be regathered from all parts of the world, which means that can only be in modern times because Israel was in the past. They were uh, removed from their land, but it was from one particular nation, like in Babylon and Assyria and so forth. But from all over the world, it's only happened twice. It's already happened for unbelievers in May 14, 1948. And the second time will be when... Jesus Christ returns, and as far as I'm concerned, the sooner the better. Okay, let's uh, continue on where we were last time. Well, actually, we're, we're, we're not even going to go there. We're just going to keep on cranking here. Let's see, where's my... Here it is. We're going to start with first... No, let's see, that's, I'm not at the right place. Y'all shut your eyes so you won't be getting dizzy looking up here. Let's see, here we are. We're going to start tonight. I don't know if that's the right lesson number, but I know that's the right date. We're going to start with Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Now, why are we going through these scriptures? You'll notice that since we've been in getting the gospel right and under the subheading of faith alone, that we've been going through a lot of verses, haven't we? And what I'm trying to get you to do is really solidify in your soul a worldview, a meta-narrative, a perspective with regards to the grace orientation that you should all have with regards to eternal salvation. I know you all have it. I mean, you can't stick around here for very long without picking up on the grace orientation. Our contact with God is grace. What is grace? Grace is everything that God is free to do on the basis of the cross. It doesn't depend upon us. We keep hearing that over and over. And I think most people, even outside of the realm of, of Bible churches, I think a lot of people have that perspective, at least to a degree, with eternal salvation. But when it comes to being sanctified, when it comes to living out the uh, life in time, many people default back to some form of legalism. 
They don't recognize that we still, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, we still are depending upon God's grace. Nothing depends upon us. The only thing that we can add to the mix, in either case, whether it is dealing with eternal salvation or whether we're talking about uh, experiential salvation, in any case, it's always based upon who and what God is, not who and what we are. And the only thing we add to the mix is our positive volition. And that's great. I mean, positive volition, though, I guess you could say it's non-meritorious in the sense that when we plug into God's plan, when we want to know God, He reveals Himself to us. And as we learn more about, more about who He is and what He wants us to do, where He wants us to be, how to fulfill the Christian way of life, as we start incorporating all these things into our soul, what we find out is that we can do nothing. In, Christ, in fact, Christ said, you can do nothing without Me. So when we have that positive volition, we want to live a life that's pleasing to Him, and you cannot do that in ignorance. You have to have knowledge. It's just, it's, I would say it's impossible to serve God in a meaningful way and grow in grace apart from knowledge. That's why we have to stay in the Word. And I don't know how many times I've seen verses. I could, I could even... Uh, quote verses to you. And I've missed the main point sometimes. Sometimes I'll see a word that I've never seen before because I'm thinking in a different context. And I say, wow, I never knew that was there. It's not that I never saw the verse. I've seen it a lot of times, but I never thought it. you have different circumstances and in any given time in life, you're focused on certain things. And when you're focused on a certain thing and you go to God's Word and you see a verse, one that you maybe even seen in the past, you see a word or you see a phrase or you see something there and you say, wow, that's been there all the time and I didn't see it. But if you say, well, it's not important, I'll just go to church once a week, twice a month, whatever. What we're going to see in the New Testament is addressing that very issue. What everybody takes... Or not everybody, but so many people who take who are not grace-oriented, they'll take all the warnings, all the things that are given in the New Testament, and they will apply them to eternal salvation. And that is a gross error. You cannot understand the New Testament apart from being grace-oriented to be able to determine what is positional and what's experiential. Apart from that, it's like reading it with blinders on. You, you, can't, you have to have those tools. If you don't understand dispensations and you start reading the Bible, you, oh, you'll pick up some stories and maybe a tidbit here or there, but you're not going to be able to execute God's plan because you don't know whose mail you're reading. Every time I talk to someone and they've never heard of dispensations or they kind of lean over more towards covenant theology, I would say, why, don't, why aren't we sacrificing goats? Why not? And sheep, why don't we do that? I mean, it was certainly applicable to Israel. Why don't we still do that? Well, apart from dispensations, how are you going to under, how are you going to explain that? So essentially, what I'm doing is I'm going through these verses, and what I want you to see, I'm I'm going through controversial verses. I'm going through verses that people will point at and say, "See, 
You can lose your salvation. See, you better keep on keeping on or you're not going to make it. Or see, if you get into this type of activity, you weren't really even saved to begin with. We're going to those verses so that you can get accustomed to reading verses in a critical way that you can see that these are warnings most of the time to believers. And if they, if they fall into disrepute, there are consequences, but the consequences never have anything to do with their eternal life. And the more verses you have under your belt, the more that you learn to critically read these verses. And when it says that if you do so-and-so, uh, the one we're going to have tonight is going to be, uh, you can be severed from Christ or you can fall from grace. Boy, these are buzzwords for people who aren't grace-oriented. See, you can fall from grace. You, you can lose your salvation. Well, if you're grace-oriented, you know that's absurd. So when you get to verses, I can't cover every verse that is a warning, but we're going through quite a few. Enough to where when you see something that someone would point out and say, See, you can lose it. See, you never had it. You can say, Now, wait a minute. What is the consequence of that? And most of the time what they're doing is making, trying to make something salvific that is experiential. So, with that in mind, let's launch into Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Galatians is the first book that I taught. The reason, well, I, I don't know, it's either Galatians or Titus. Maybe it was Titus, but I think it was Galatians. And the reason that I chose it was because it was short. And I thought, maybe I can handle this one. And Galatians was one of the, it's arguably the earliest uh, epistle written. The first. And it's also the strongest. Paul was excoriating these people. You stupid Galatians! I can't believe that you started out in grace and now you think you can be sanctified with works. What is the matter with you people? That's the force that is throughout the entire book of Galatians. But we're in chapter 5, so let's take a look. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, set here is the aorist active indicative. And the, you always have to look at context. One of the speakers at the conference said, one of the most important things, the three most important things in Scripture, when you're trying to find out what God has to say with, to you in any given Scripture, there's three things you have to keep in mind. Context, context, and context. You know, like location, location, location. So it's clear when it, what, what he's talking about, not only in this chapter, but indeed in the entire book, what he is talking about is being free from legalism, thinking that you can earn or merit something from God. And that is a yoke of slavery. And you are freed from that when you experientially, when you understand that we can do nothing except through God through the Holy Spirit to enable us to do these things. And it also, of course, set us, Christ set us free in a point in time, aorist tense, indicative mood, it was a reality. Positionally, when Christ went to the cross, our sin problem was taken care of. But when we were actually saved and when, is when we adopted the redemption solution. It's when we believed in Christ, at that point is when we were eternally saved. Now, all those people, and we are in a very small minority 
that are Christians that are saved and understand something about soteriology, know something about Christology, know something about homardiology, uh, you know, sin and salvation and the Holy Spirit, uh, pneumatology, all these things, when you can connect the dots, that's very rare to be able to do that. In fact, how many people, how many Christians do you know outside of this church or maybe at another Bible church have any inkling how to decipher scriptures as to determine whether they're talking about eternal salvation or, they, or your experience in time? See, it's, we have developed a vocabulary. It's important to develop a vocabulary because that's what we think with. We think with words. So now when we're trying to de- distinguish between what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ and has eternal ramifications, when we, de- when we try to distinguish that from what happens now that we are post-salvation in time, what do we call that? And I, I mean, you, you can call it different things. A lot of people just call it sanctification. And that's fine, but there is a positional sanctification. We are saints. All these words have the same, uh, come from the same family or root. Saints, sanctification, uh, sanctified. And it, has, it does have a positional sense because it means to be set apart from God for blessing, and that certainly happened in a positional sense. But usually, if you're reading theological journals or you're reading um, journal, uh, newsletters and these type of things, theologians and those uh, who are, are writing in these, uh, in these papers usually will use justification for the term of what happens at salvation. And often they'll use sanctification for the same thing that we call experiential sanctification. They just don't put experiential with it. I like to add experiential sanctification for two reasons. First of all, it separates it and, and keeps it separate from what happens at positional so you don't get the two mixed up. And second of all, it has the word, or from, from the root word, experience. We're talking about our experience on this planet. So I think it kind of um, is a, a little bit more specific, experiential sanctification. So, when he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, in this context, he's talking about set us free from trying to merit salvation or the approbation of God. And it's clear by now, I'm sure all of you, all everyone here understands, that is as foolish as you can get trying to merit something from God. In, in Romans, uh, the book of Romans, it says that the more that you work, the more you go in debt. All we can do is add our volition, have the desire to accomplish what God has set before us, and He will do it through us. So we can't, we can't take any credit for it, but we have been free. Aren't you glad that you're free from legalism? Legalism is a poisonous word. It poisons everyone that will drink of that poisonous Kool-Aid of legalism. And it, it, to be free of that, to know that the only reason I can stand before God the Father is because of Jesus Christ. Because of what He did for us on the cross, we can be accepted because we are in Christ. And in a, in a similar way, what we're going to see in some of the verses we look at tonight is that we have 
in Christ in a positional sense. You know that from the circles. Isn't it great I can just say circles and I don't have to explain anything? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Because being in Christ is in the top circle. But you know what? It's also referenced that way in the bottom circle sometimes in Scripture. And we have to be very, very discerning. Because sometimes it will say, essentially, if you are in Christ, if you are, if you are executing what Christ would have you do, in that sense you are in Christ, but it's talking about experientially. I gave you, I think it was eight or nine words that have double meanings, double meanings in the sense that it could be positional or experiential. They're used both ways in the Bible. And that's key. Okay, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. This is what Paul was writing the Galatians about because this was a time frame when the biggest problem was legalism. And he says, you're already set free experience, I mean, uh, positionally, and you should know because when he, he had taught them, uh, uh, Paul had taught them, about being grace-oriented. But you know what happens when you, when you don't hear that reinforced? If you don't have that continuing to uh, feed your soul, what happens is a vacuum enters into your soul and it will suck in whatever is prevalent out there. And what is prevalent in this devil's world? Legalism. You have to work, not only to be saved, but to get blessings. There's a lot of people, a lot of believers that understand that you don't have to work in order to be eternally saved. But after that, you have to work for blessing. And that's as if we can merit God's blessing. The only thing, remember, I was showing the essence box, I think it was last Sunday, and I explained that God only loves in a, in a personal way that which is perfect. Well, it's the same thing with what He blesses. He can only bless that which is perfect. Now, the best thing that we can do, which might be admirable among others, is still, in God's eyes, relative, and it stinketh. Because He can only bless what is perfect. Can we produce what is perfect? Absolutely. When and how? When we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're trusting in God and we know what He wants us to do. And my thing lost, didn't it? I'm sorry, this is just the way I am when I come back from a, a conference. I'm pumped. You know, I just, uh, am I going too fast? Okay. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, this is the third class conditional clause, meaning maybe you will, maybe you won't, but if you do, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Huh? Christ is no benefit to us? Now, you have to, again, we have to look at the context. Uh, this isn't, uh, in that day, it wasn't for, um, let me just put it this way. Circumcision was not done for any health reasons. It was done as being obedient to the Mosaic law upon penalty of death. And so when Paul came along and he started telling the Jews, which for you know, a couple of millennia, millennia there nearly, uh, they're saying, well, you have to do this. And he comes along and says, no, you don't. What do you think they did? Well, <laughs> they tried to kill him over and over. They, they, they would have, wouldn't have it. So he's saying, and 
the Galatians. Were these Jewish people or were these Gentiles? They were Gentile. Now, there were Jews there, but it was, you know, uh, Galatia is, you know, quite a ways from uh, Jerusalem and, and, and Israel where it is there. So it might, wouldn't that cause you to wonder, well, what are the Gentiles doing demanding to be circumcised in order to obey the Mosaic law? Well, it was because they were Jews. That the Jewish influence was there. What was Paul? He was a Jew. And there were Jews there. And everywhere that Paul went, the Judaizers would come right behind him and try to undo what he did. You see, he had Paul probably had the hardest job of anybody on earth because he had to go to these very legalistic Jews who had taught that if you want to be accepted by God, you have to keep the law. And Paul is coming back and he said, you don't have to keep the law. Jesus Christ came. We are under a new dispensation. And we are not to do all the things that were done in the past. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to uh, observe the holy days. Uh, you don't have to uh, fast. You don't have to make sacrifices. You don't have to do all these things. It would be the same as if someone came through these doors and they said, you know what? We're in a new dispensation. You know, I know that y'all are all grace-oriented and everything, but now we have to go back and we start doing sacrifices and we have to be saved by keeping the law. What would you do? You'd probably want to kill him. And that's, it was just as offensive to the Jews. And so he is explaining to these Gentiles that if... Now, let me back up just a second. Why would these Gentiles want to do something, especially the males? I mean, I can't see any male saying, Hey, don't forget, we need to obey the... Mosaic law, we all need to be circumcised. I don't see any Gentile doing that apart from one thing. They bought into the lie that it was necessary to be eternally saved. That's why they were doing it. And that's why Paul is making such a big deal about it. And that, in that context is what he means when he says, uh, do not be again... Uh, be subject again to the yoke of slavery. See, it was slavery to have to try to be accepted by God by the Mosaic Law. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is righteous and good. And God gave it to the... Can you give me two reasons why God gave the Israelites the law? That's one reason. One reason is because the law was perfect and it showed them they couldn't keep it and they needed a Savior. That was one reason. You know another reason? Who was it given to? What were the Jews? They were slaves. They had no idea how to function as a nation. And so God very graciously gave them uh, three codices. And you had the spiritual and you had the civil, and you had the spiritual codices to show them how to function in, in, in every way. And what did they do? Instead of being so, uh, have so much gratitude for God for showing them how to function, but it's mainly in the spiritual area that they started teaching, you have to obey the law. If you don't obey the law, then you won't make it. And what Paul is saying, you can't make it anyway. And besides, when Christ came... He has set 
Israel temporarily aside. So I want to make sure that you understand this was a big deal. It wasn't just a a ritual or something. They were claiming you had to do this for salvation. And, well, I'll just go on because I can't improve on what Paul says. He says, Behold, Paul, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Why? Because you're not depending upon His grace. You're trying to make it on your own effort now. And he says, And I testify to every man who receives circumcision that he is under the obligation to keep the whole law. James chapter 2, verse 10. It's not just about this one thing. If you want to start being under the law, then keep the whole law. And not just the ten, ten commandments, which no one can keep anyway. Try 633. And if you offend one time, trying to make it to heaven is out. Because all you have to do is slip one time and you can't make it. That was Paul's message to him, and he's giving it to him here again. Now, number four, this is where we were getting to, or I'm trying to get to, where people will pick up on this verse. See, they don't think of any of this context. They just want to jump to the buzzwords here, buzz phrases. And he says, you have been severed from Christ. Now, who is the you? Who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who have already been sanctified and justified positionally and so forth. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. How are they doing that? By saying, we have to be circumcised. That keeps the law. Therefore, we have a, this is how we get to heaven. And Paul is saying, no way. I don't even want to tell you what he finally concluded with regards to this circumcision. He didn't pull any punches. So he says, you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified. You have fallen from grace. Oh, I have seen Jehovah. I have talked to Jehovah Witnesses. They go to this verse and they say, what do you mean you can't lose your salvation? Look, you can fall from grace. What are you going to do when they come knocking on your door and you say, show me someplace where you can lose your salvation they turn to this, this verse? Are you going to be able to put it in context? Are you going to be able to explain it in your own words? That's why we're going through these verses so that you'll be able to do it. Not using my words, but you're getting the concept. You're trying to see. Okay, one of the things you're going to look at is what happens if you fall from grace. What is the consequence? That will tell you a lot. First of all, we know that believers can be severed from Christ. They can fall from grace. It says in verse 5, For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. I have said all of this and I haven't gone to my notes yet about this verse. So we know quite a bit from it already. Few verses have been used more than this one to prove a believer can lose his salvation or that he is not truly saved if he doesn't persevere till the end. I mean, it's got everything in it. Severed from Christ, fallen from grace. That's all we need to know, so they say. If believing... If believing severed severed from Christ and falling from grace refers to unbelievers, Paul would have mentioned something about hell or loss of heaven, eternal life. 
His imputed righteousness, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, or the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of which are irrevocable, but He didn't. He didn't say any of these things are on the line here. Why didn't He? I mean, if you could fall from grace, if you could be severed from Christ, we're going to see what the consequence was, but wouldn't you expect something in, along those lines, these irrevocable gifts that God gives us? Wouldn't you expect that to be mentioned? They're not. Romans 11:29. This is a good verse to, to remember, even if you just remember this part of it. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You know what irrevocable means? Can't take them back. Can you think of two very important gifts that every believer receives at the point of salvation? What? Imputed righteousness and eternal life. Every believer gets those two verses, I mean, those two uh, gifts. And for a believer to lose his salvation, God would have to revoke both of those. And this verse says that the gifts and calling of God is irrevocable. When God calls a believer and he responds, it's impossible for him to say, okay, I'm going to take back that imputed righteousness now. I'm going to take back that eternal... How can you take back eternal life, by the way? It's eternal. If someone tried to take it back, they couldn't do it because it's eternal. Well... The consequences he mentioned for being circumcised was to what? Return to the yoke of slavery. That's the consequence. That's the penalty. That's the downside. If you insist on being circumcised in order to be legalistic, to obey the Mosaic law, the downside is not eternity in the lake of fire. It's that you're going to go back into slavery trying to impress God with your little relative righteousness that you can produce. And you're not going to be free. You're putting your head right back in the noose there. Did we see that? We haven't got to that yet, have we? We'll see it in a minute. Uh, the entire thrust of the epistle was to emphasize the freedom a believer has as he travels on grace wheel tracks of life. You like those grace wheel tracks? Huh? You know, there shouldn't be too many legalistic believers here. I mean, how could you stay? <laughs> It'd be like us attending the meetings of the ACLU. How could you stay? We're on grace wheel tracks. The believer falls from that grace when he falls back into or submits himself to the slavery of legalism. Here's a verse. Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one's what? Comes short of the grace of God. Isn't that the same as falling from the grace of God? Coming short of it, falling from it? that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it be defiled. So if, and he's talking to believers here, if they fall short of grace, the grace of God, they get into bitterness, what happens? They're going to cause trouble and there's going to be uh, 
uh, many are going to be defiled by it. Have you ever been around a real bitter person that never has anything uplifting or kind or edifying or encouraging to say? What happens to all the people around them? It brings them down, don't they? I'll tell you a, a trick. If you're ever in front of people like I am so often and you're, you're, you're giving a, a, a message or a lesson or whatever it may be, there's all, not in this group, but in any usually larger group maybe, you're going to find a few people that look like this. They're just scowling. You can just tell by their body language. They're just nearly vibrating like this. Just don't look at them. Because if you focus on those people, you know what they're going to do? They're going to bring you down. And so what do I do? I look on the bubbly people. I look at the people. I see these all the time. Some of you are not even aware of it. And as I'm teaching, you're going like this. Like a bubble. What do they call those things? Bobble, bobblehead or something. And I, that's, that's a good thing. But, I mean, you're, you're concentrating and you're getting in it and you're just going, yeah, yeah, that's the people I look at. It encourages me. They're getting it. And so this root of bitterness, what's going to happen? This is talking about believers. They, if you fall short of the grace of God, it, this is something that is a very real danger for us is for us to get bitter. When we don't understand that even undeserved suffering from God is a gracious gift that God is giving us. He wants to promote us. He wants to show us all. And when we utilize the doctrine that we've learned, boy, does it advance our, our, our spiritual growth. And we're, we're cranking out rewards and decorations and things for what's coming next. So this is very short of what it shows here. See, in the brown colored here you have fallen from grace here's a couple of others second peter 3:17 be on your guard lest being a car- carried away by the error of unprincipled men you fall from your own steadfastness steadfastness now this is very close to falling from grace because if you get to where you're disoriented with regards to grace who do you think everything oh, let me put it this way Everything depends on who when you're not grace-oriented. Yourself, right? And that's, that's what this is talking about. And you fall from your own steadfastness. Because apart from God's grace, how much steadfastness do you have? How much do I have? Zero. With His grace, with knowing His essence, with knowing the logistical grace that He gives to every believer and His promises and everything else, how much steadfastness do we have? Tremendous. But if the era of unprincipled men can come into your life and start making you think it depends on you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Okay, we're talking about believers and we're going to see that they can fall into the temptation of what? Plunge, uh, what? Foolish and harmful desires which plunge, plunge men into ruin and destruction. And what are they talking about? Look at the next verse. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's not money. It's the love of money. 
and it will plunge them to all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, what? Have wandered away from the faith. Isn't that similar to falling from the faith? Coming short of faith? Coming falling from your own steadfastness? These are all terms that are saying the same thing, and they are directed towards believers. This is the New Testament warning us. This can happen to you. Every one of these verses, by the way, strongly refute the idea of the Reformed theology, those in Reformed theology, that if you are truly saved, you will persevere to the end. Really? Then why do we have all these warnings in here given to believers that this is absolutely a, not only a potential, it's more probable, it's more certain that it's going to happen. And aren't you glad for rebound? So all these things are essentially saying the same thing. To be severed from Christ means they were to be severed from the sanctifying effects of a relationship with Him. Not from a saving relationship. From a sanctifying, experientially sanctifying relationship with Him. Furthermore, to be severed from Christ and to fall from grace logically requires a farmer standing in grace in connection with Christ from which to fall and be severed, doesn't it? How can you fall from grace if you never had it anyway? How can you be disconnected from Christ if you were never connected to begin with? Can you be disconnected from Christ? And that's a trick question. Because I can say you're wrong either way you answer it, or I can say you're right any way you answer it. And what you need to do is you need to ask me, what kind of connection are you talking about? A positional or experiential Oh, now we're talking. See? And that's what we need to ask people when they tell us. You know, they'll ask us something, and we'll just assume that we know what they're talking about. We'll assume that the words they're using mean the same thing that we do, and we'll start blathering off something. When all we need to do is start asking, well, what do you mean by that? Are y'all doing that? This is a quote from... The Reign of the Servant Kings by Joseph Dillow, page 425. Excellent book. Two different ways of living the Christian life are being contrasted in Galatians 5. Not two different eternal states. What was Paul contrasting? Grace and law. Therefore, to fall from grace is to fall into law, not into damnation. It would be interesting to take these verses, any of those there, but especially this one here, Galatians 5, 1 through 4, especially number 4, and take those not to unbelievers, not to the cults. Take them to evangelical churches and ask them, what does this mean? What kind of answers do you think you would get? You know, I wish I had the time. I wish I had the, everything that would be necessary to do that because I would love to do that. I, I guess I could make a, uh, have a career in, um, what are those pollsters, uh, the um, Gallup poll? I'd love to work for Gallup poll because I like to see what people really think. One of my favorite things, uh, I don't watch Jay Leno or any of those shows too much, but I like to watch Jay Leno when, he, when the part is about jaywalking. And the reason I like it so much is because he just goes up to people and asks them questions. What do you think? People don't, you don't hear what people think anymore. 
You can be on a crowded street and think all these people are rational and sane. They're not. Well, we're not either. (laughs) But especially when you get into the spiritual realm, you start asking them about questions in the Bible, and you'll hear, do 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 do. You know, this is the outer limits. This is this is Wackoville, and that's why I like it because it's just you can't believe it. Have y'all ever seen jaywalking? I mean, these are people. <laughs> It's, it's, these are grown people. Well, you shouldn't expect, I guess, too much because of the dumbed-down educational system that most of these people have gone through. But uh, one time he, parked, he pointed up at a flag, the American flag. And this was a grown man. He looked like about 50 years old. And Jay said, how many stars are on that flag? He said, I can't tell. It's blowing too hard. You wonder how we, how we, how do we make it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about that same thing when I say irrevocable. In my mind, what registers is indicator. <laughs> of course, you say that today, and they might just haul you off. You know, uh, that's politically incorrect. What? Uh, she said, Indian giver. When we were talking about irrevocable assets, she said one of the worst things you could be called as a child is an Indian giver. We all know what that is, uh, don't we? I mean, some of y'all are from the north. I, I guess they had Indian givers in the north, huh? <laughs> I mean, you that would get your blood up. Someone call you an Indian giver. What would they call... What do they call them, regifters? <laughs> I don't know. Well, um, where are we? Oh, yeah, we're way down here, aren't we? Okay. Uh, if you understand verses 1 4, now here's something I want to ask you. Get ready. Here it comes. Verse 4 You have been justified. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. Verse 5 For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now, here's the question. Don't say it. What kind of righteousness is that talking about? See? If you understand verses 1 through 4, then you will understand the type of righteousness that is mentioned in verse 5. It is referring to what? Positional righteousness or experiential righteousness? Now, let me go back to it so you'll see it. Don't say it. Just think it. And remember, God knows what you're thinking. (laughs) Uh, Is anything in this verse talking about positional? Do you see any positional in there? Do we have to hope for something that we already have? This is how I want you... I want you to ask these questions when you're looking at these verses. I'm training you to do this for yourself. The whole context here is experiential. And it's talking about 
For uh, we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And I don't know about you, but I hope for experiential righteousness. I hope that God will give me enough time to stumble through this life and make it, put it, connect enough dots whereby I can understand finally that this life isn't about me. It's about Him. I'm here to be His servant. I'm here to prepare for what's next. The things that I do now are going to determine what I'm going to be in the next life. Not where. I guess I could even say who. Maybe who I'm going to be and what I'm going to be in the next life. Now, if that doesn't get people to get their spudazo up, by the way, oh, I, I, I just went way too slow tonight compared to what I was wanting to do. But thank, thankfully, uh, we're not gauged on how many scriptures or how much material we cover. What really matters is how, much, how many scriptures or how much material that we cover that you can retain and is going to benefit you. And I've had people who left the church. He just teaches too slow. Well, fine. There it is. Go and go to some church where they where they teach two or three chapters of a message. You know, I could do that. You can't even. I mean, we're here for an hour, maybe. Not quite an hour yet, but pretty close. How long does it take just to read three chapters? I mean, what maybe. 10, 15 minutes, it depends on how long the chapter is. And you get three chapters, and it takes a third of the time or a fourth of the time to read it, and then the rest of the time you're going to fly through three chapters? I remember, I'm not going to say who it was, but I was on the phone with someone, and uh, they were, they happened to be in First Kings. I said, really? I, I'm in First Kings. I'm teaching First Kings too. I said, what did you study? Where are you? What did you study uh, last time y'all met? And she said, First uh, Kings chapter 5, 6, and 7. What? I didn't get through three verses and they get through three chapters. Well, by the time we're done, you're going to know about Galatians 5, 1 through 4. And there is a lot there, isn't there? Okay, so we're talking about experiential righteousness. And here's where I'm going to end because i got my next verse there ready to go. This last thing will conclude us with first, I mean, with Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Paul includes himself in those who were waiting for the hope of righteousness. Listen to this. This, of course, is referring to believers who, have already, who already have imputed righteousness, so they certainly wouldn't be hoping and waiting for something that they already have. And what is he doing here? If he, if somebody will, what people will say is he's talking about unbelievers, people who had salvation and lost it because they fell from grace. They were disconnected from Christ. They'll say that that is unbelievers. But let me ask, here would be a good question to ask them. How can you contrast unbelievers with unbelievers? Are believers, see what he's doing He's talking to believers and he is contrasting them with what? He's contrasting them with dumb butt believers. 
He's contrasting them with believers and believers. You understand that? If they were unbelievers, how can you contrast unbelievers with unbelievers? You can't do that. And that's what people allege. I can see that y'all aren't getting that well. And here I was right at the end. If I just not brought that up. I think I had that up here at the very beginning, didn't I? Didn't I have something about... Um, if being severed from Christ and falling from grace referred to unbelievers, Paul would, Paul would have... Well, he would have to mention... I thought I put it there, but I didn't. In other words, these have to be believers to contrast with unbelievers even if they, if they think that they were unbelievers. Because you can't say... Okay, if these were unbelievers who did this, and now they're contrasted with something, it has to be something different. You got that? No, you don't. Okay. Well, we'll fight that another day. I'm out of time. And I was gonna, I was gonna close a little early tonight, but I didn't. Oh, I gotta, I gotta hit this one. Okay. All right. Uh. Let's see, Sunday we're going to have an a annual business meeting, isn't it, this next Sunday? Uh, we'll have our annual business meeting immediately following the service. So, this is our hardcore group. And you don't have to stay. But if you all hit that like, you know, the, like the church is on fire, it's going to motivate other people to do the same. So you don't have to stay, but it would be a good idea. And I'm not telling you to stay. It's up to your own volition. It's not going to take long. And, yes. <laughs> if you want to call that leading. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. Um, no, I'm, I just, Garth does a good job. I appreciate what he does. I really do. And he does it in such a way. He can take a boring business meeting and make it enjoyable. Um, and then I, I had something I was going to say. What, what, when you said, uh, what did you ask me again? Oh, it's Garth. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Um, there are some very interesting statistics that I found from that Ron gave me on the Internet. Very interesting. It would be worth this stay just to find out what the Lord is doing on the Internet. So with that said, let's close. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this uh, so invigorating, how invigorating your grace is. That we just praise you and are so thankful that your plan depends on you and not us. And that you have revealed that in your word and we don't have to strive and wonder if we're good enough because we know that Christ was and that's who we're trusting. So we pray that you will help us look at these verses in the Bible with that critical eye to determine whether they are positional or experiential. Look at the consequences. What is the result if we, if we don't abide by these warnings? We will not find in these experiential verses anything of loss of salvation because indeed that's impossible. So we thank you for your plan. We thank you for your word. We pray it all in Christ's name.